Bam, we're live. We're don't live. Say anything, don't say anything you wouldn't want your parents to hear. We're live. <laughs> but Andy's right here, and it means he can't. Hi, Sivan. <laughs> Andy, good morning. Good morning, brother. How are you doing, young man? You I'm, ha- I'm, ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy as a clam to see both of you. Oh, you can. Brilliant. Happy as a clam. Because you hear it. expression. Yeah, happy. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Happy as a clam. Why are clams happy? No, you've, you've cut him off. Andy's just cut you off. <laughs> when uh, usually I have some help on the back end. As soon as he comes on the back end, I'll ask him what it means. Happy as a clam. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> Zoe, I want to read you uh, something. Is that okay? Yeah, brilliant. Go for it. Okay. I've heard countless speakers and read more books on nutrition than anyone I know. Zoe Harcomb is that singular voice who speaks from intelligently principled and logically and scientifically. She's the mother of modern nutritional science as far as I'm concerned. I've always enjoyed defending her against the academic peer-reviewed epidemiology fraud crowd. Greg Glassman. Greg sent that to me. I think he's pretty excited that you're coming on the show. Oh, I thought the question was going to be who said that. I, I, oh, I oh. <laughs> sorry, sorry. It's Trivial Pursuit, but I, I asked the questions and gave the answers. Just one person. That's very good. You're on your morning coffee. I am. Do you drink coffee? Oh, yeah. One in the morning, and then that's it. The rest that's of the day. It. That's it. One. Yeah. Okay. I have one when I wake up, which was, uh, I don't know, an hour ago, and then and then, and then then another one for the show. And then I think that's usually it. I used to be like 10 cups a day. It's, it's not good for anyone. Not good. Not good. No, not no. good. Uh, what time is it where you're at? It is three o'clock in the afternoon. Just uh, yeah, three o'clock. Find the yeah, three o'clock exactly. You're bang on time. Very good. And and what country are you in? I'm in Wales. And is Wales its own country? Yeah, kind of. We're part of the UK. Um, so the UK is Wales, Scotland, England, and Northern Ireland, and that's been very apparent during all of this COVID stuff. Um, so we've had separate coronavirus nonsense acts and various things but for most of um legislation we are part of the uk so it's education and health that is devolved to wales um but it just gets ridiculous i mean i'm really near the england border and there were days when you had to do one thing in england and different thing in wales and you weren't supposed to travel in one country you weren't supposed to wear a mask in the other country it's just been insane so um we're only a little country. We could fit into most of your U.S. states as is, and it's just all been nuts. Well, we're, we're, we're in bizarre situations like that, too. We're in places where kids are masked in school and five feet away, their stadiums um, having the largest boxing matches in the world w- w- indoor. I mean, we, we have all that insanity here. Um, but I, I guess I'm asking you if it's a country and I don't even know what a country is. I guess like does, does Wales have its own representatives in the U.N.? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Okay. How about Scotland? Is that a country? Yeah, but you're you're asking an interesting thing. So if you took uh, as an example EU membership, then it was mm-hmm. the UK. Okay. So when the UK left the EU. Scotland and Wales left. Scotland didn't want to leave. I think on balance, Wales did want to leave. So I doubt we would have our own representatives at the UN by that um, by that logic. I, I think it would count as the UK for that kind of thing. Okay. So it's it's fascinating. Uh, it's the kind of thing. If I was a twelve year old boy, I'd be making fun of us for it. Those people don't know whether they're countries or not. But but things have gotten a little complicated, right? 
And they have. Yeah, they've got really calm. And all of this only happened in 1999. So until 1999, we were all one country. Good old Tony Blair, bless him, or don't bless him. Um, he decided to offer the country's devolution um, to run some of their own regulations and, and how they worked. Um, you're looking it up now, aren't you? Um, and so in 1999, approximately 50% of Wales turned out to vote and approximately 50% of those people voted to have devolution. So only 25% of Wales voted in favour of devolution. The other 75% either voted against or didn't bother. And we ended up with devolution. And quite frankly, it's a nightmare. I would love to get rid of it and just get back to being the, the whole UK, not necessarily because I like the UK government or what the UK government is doing right now, but it just makes no sense to have four different governing regulations, particularly in terms of health or education. Um, and it's just got nuts over the last two years. It's just been a mess. So um, More, bu- more bureauc- bureaucracy, more, more money being wasted, more confusion, more, more yeah. bullshit. And yeah. the money, we, you know, we created a whole assembly building where they could meet we have i don't know 60 assembly members who are all on fabulous salaries six-figure salaries they've all then got admins and other people who work for them we've created this whole infrastructure just to look after health and education and quite frankly wales is doing a pretty bad job of it Um, so we're not performing better than england in health or education so however bad england is it's really difficult to argue that devolution was a good thing for wales yeah. Um, oh, sorry to interrupt. I want to uh, introduce you to someone real quick. Uh, this is uh, Matt Souza. I've seen him. I did have a look at a couple of your podcasts. Hi, Matt. Uh, hi. And, and, you doing wonderful. Me, really. Do I think? And, and Matt, Matt's had the honor of hearing you speak live in um, Santa Cruz, California. Also. Oh wow! Um, yeah. And he he lived about seventy miles uh, north of there, where he owns a gym called CrossFit Livermore. And Matt was invited to one of the DDCs, and then proceeded to sneak <laughs> into um, all of the rest of them. He would find out when they were and sneak down there, which is really cool. Good. I think. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. When when we were free and we didn't have masks and all this stuff that's been that's going right. on. I like those days. Um. Th- thanks, Matt. Um. I don't even know where to start with you. It's it, what you what, it, what, the mo- as I dug into you, it's crazy. It's crazy your background. So you have a bachelor's, you have, you have a bachelor's and master's in economics and math. Yes. And you have a uh, a PhD in public nutrition. Yes, public health and nutrition. Yeah. Have you ever thought about running for office? <laughs> no, not in any country. No. I don't like politics. I think I think you've got to be a certain kind of person to be in politics. I think you've got to think you know what everybody else wants and then you've got to have the ego that make you think you're the right person to then go ahead and do that and I'm I'm not either of those um I'm not so arrogant that I think I know what everyone else wants and I haven't got the ego that says I want to go and run your lives I just want to be left alone particularly after these last two years I I, I'm politically homeless if any yeah yeah and said I'm for freedom I just want to leave you alone I want to regulate as little as possible and just let you get on with your life. That's my that's my party now. There's left and right has gone. It's not left and right. It's right and wrong. And I'm done with all the nonsense we've got at the moment. Wow, politically homeless. I'm going to use that. I'm politically homeless too. You, um, you say you say you're not um, um, uh, arrogant enough to be a politician, but you have this website that's called Zari, Zoe Har- Harcomb.com. and 
Um, it is a place where you, and please correct me um, if I'm wrong, it is a place where you take articles, you take publications, and you look at them and you show, and you put, and you either uh, validate them or unvalidate them. You poke holes in them, you ask questions about them, and you show where they've lost their way. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I hope it's not arrogant. I hope it's just good research. Um, I started doing it over 10 years ago. I've done there's something called a Monday note and we'll get you on it. I think you'd really enjoy it. We'll get you on it straight away. And I, every Monday I send out this note and it takes something topical. So there was something um, looking at meat and dairy. If you ditch meat and dairy, you're going to live 10 years longer or something. So I want to go and look at the original paper. People haven't got time to do it. People running CrossFit gyms, nutritionists, lay people, mums, whatever, doctors, academics, they don't have the time to read it. So I dissect it for them. And then I send them an um, article, usually two to 3,000 words long. It's got a summary that's just a few hundred words long. So you can go for the really short version or you can go into it in more detail. And I basically unpack it and I say, is the article right? Where did it go wrong if it's, if it's not right? And I have been utterly astonished. There is barely an article out there that you can't find fault with. Um, and they get through peer review. And some of the, the faults are, are catastrophic. You know, they didn't adjust for alcohol um, in some dietary claim that they're making that would depend very heavily on alcohol intake, or they don't adjust for activity, or they claim that activity really doesn't have any impact. Um, it's just incredible, uh, the, the mistakes that are made. But then they become gospel and then they get quoted by other articles. So people then run around saying, oh, the Seidelman low carb review that said low carb, you know, have low carb diets and you're going to die, basically. Um, and then it gets through peer review and it gets in, a, in an esteemed journal and it ended up being cited by other people. And um, we've got a forum in, in one of our clubs and people will chat and it might be at the lay level. Someone saying my mother-in-law is giving me grief because I keep giving my husband red meat. Um, or it might be an academic at an institution who's trying to write about the nutritional value of red meat, who just sees these articles popping up every week saying red meat's going to kill you. So it can be really different people. But I I want to take it apart. If it's right, I'll say it's right. Um, you know, the pure study is great. Um, not conflicted, came to good conclusions, couldn't find much fault with it. Um, but the stuff that's trying to damn red meat, praise whole grains every week, it's just not robust. Um, Susan, can you go back to, to the website? So if anyone, if you don't know this website, you should tab this website and you should visit this regularly and not only to get information from it that will absolutely change your life and everyone's life around you, but also there's this notion out there that people will say, well, I'm educated. So I know, or I'm a doctor, I know, or I'm a scientist and I know, and this clearly shows that that is not true at all. If you cannot think critically, if you cannot ask the right questions, it does not matter how much education you have. Will you click on that article, the uh, JCVI uh, Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization? It's her most recent one. And, and this is what's just crazy because we see this in the United States it, just everywhere now. And for some reason, people are struggling with it. You see things like, you know, the, the head of Pfizer is on the Coca-Cola board. And you're like, wait a second. Uh, the vast majority of people who've died in this country have had four or more comorbidities and every single obese person that I interview, they, I say, what's your biggest crutch? And they say soda pop. And I'm like, wow, like how, how is there a relationship with these guys? Yes. And there it is. You it took you two seconds. <laughs> 
It took you two seconds to find it. Um, this this is an article about people who, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, about people who are supposed to be advising the um, the UK on policy. It's supposed to be a non-biased group of people who advise the UK on who should get the vaccine, who should not get the vaccine. It's supposed yeah. to be a, a, a group of like 15 or 16 people who are totally unbiased. Well, just with just a cursory check, Zoe finds people who uh, uh, almost all of them are biased. They have some sort of issue. They have some sort of conflict. Not only did they not report it, but one of them um, failed to declare that he leads the Pfizer Vaccine Center of Excellence. I shouldn't laugh because it's I'm just like – whole. I like, this is just this, by the way, every article on this website has something like this where you're like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then you, and then you see this, this, this can't, this can't be the person, the person. Um, I think we saw Pfizer made 27 or $38 billion in profits. We cannot have them on a committee that's advising our kids to get the shot or to not get the shot. I mean, it, it's anyone can be bought off for that much money. Is that correct, Zoe? That's that's my view. That, that, yeah, that. I, I think, and I kind of have a, a bit of a speciality in conflicts of interest. So I've looked at the dietary conflicts of interest in the past and found, for example, I ended up getting a publication in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I found that the Public Health England had appointed a committee to come up with the role model healthy eating for the UK. And it was basically a panel of the who's who of the fake food industry. So it was the Food and Drink Federation, the in- Institute of Grocery Distribution, Association of Convenience Stores, which is kind of like the 7-Elevens over in the US, um, the British Nutrition Foundation, don't be fooled by the name, that's also the who's who of the fake food industry. So if you put together all the organisations that in some way were represented by this panel of about 11 people who were coming up with the Eat Badly plate, as I called it in the UK, they represented every fake food company you could think think of from McDonald's to um, biscuit companies, whole um, cereal companies, Kellogg's, General Mills, um, Costa, M&S, Sainsbury's, grocery stores, just everything was represented by these organisations. And then, of course, they come up with this plate that has hardly any meat on it or fish or eggs um, or dairy products. If there are any dairy products, of course, it's got to be low fat dairy. And it's just all cereals and beige stuff and pasta and rice and bread and stuff that's going to make us fat and sick quite frankly. And and they then tell us that's the role model of healthy eating. And then you get all these other papers. So that's kind of on the the food side. And then all the stuff I'm looking at for the Monday note, it's just red meat is bad. Whole grains are good. Low fat is good. Real fat is bad. And all the rest. It's just incessant. They're just coming at you from all angles. Um, I looked at, we have a committee that's been advising the government on COVID policy since February, March, 2020, a couple of years ago. Um, called SAGE. Um, What does it stand for? Something advisory, um, special advisory group for emergencies or strategic advisory group, something like that. Um, And again, found out that they had immense conflicts with pharmaceutical companies, vaccine making organisations. And their advice to the UK was basically shut yourself indoors, just lock everyone inside, don't let them come out, close down public transport, close the schools, Um, just put us into this horrific, unprecedented social experiment for several months and do that until we get a vaccine. It's like we've never had a coronavirus vaccine. We've had coronaviruses for 55 years. We've never had a vaccine. Why would that be? Um, Which is what I started researching back in the summer of 2020. But it's like, no, stay locked down. 
and then we'll get a vaccine. And sure enough, not ever having had one, we suddenly get about 10. It's like buses. They all come along at once. Um, And these guys were the ones who said, that's your playbook. Shut down, open when you get a a vaccine. Um, And of course, then we had to shut down again because um, it didn't quite go to plan. But they were all conflicted. And so I did the, the conflicts on that one as well. So that's how I sort of became known to some people in the UK who've been standing up against all the COVID measures saying this isn't right. And there's a group that's since been formed called the Together Declaration. And and we've had a lot of success since that was formed. You have? You have had success? Yeah. So um, if you follow the Together Declaration on Twitter, um, there's a phenomenal guy at the head of it, a guy called Alan Miller, just one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. If he were only prime minister or president of some of the nations around the world, things would be in a much better place right now. Um, And they have a website and they have sort of seven policies. They don't want mandates is the big thing. We don't want things mandated. We want freedom for human beings. We want normal back. We want to go back to the life that we had. Uh, It was it was good. Um, We want it for our children and our grandchildren. Um, And things like we had a, a no jab, no job mandate came in in England Um, interestingly Wales didn't go for it and Scotland didn't go for it but Wales and Scotland had different measures that were more draconian it was real swings and roundabouts how do you get more draconian than that how do you get more draconian than no no jab no Um, job while while England were saying no jab no job um, they you were kind of still able to go into outlets in England without showing a covid pass Um, whereas in Wales to even get into the cinema there's together. Brilliant. So Wales, to even get in the cinema, you had to show a COVID pass. So I couldn't go into a local cinema or theatre. Yeah. Um, I forget where else they introduced them. And I, I refuse to use them. I am not having a papers, please, society. So. Yeah. And I refuse to lie also, by the way. I'm not going to lie either and tell you I am vaccinated when I'm not. Yeah, it's none of anyone's damn business. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly. when did everybody's health become everybody else's business. Yep. Um, it has just become astonishing. And just on principle. It doesn't matter whether you're okay sharing personal details or not. Just as a matter of principle, if if somebody starts inquiring into your private matters, you should just tell them to bugger off. It's none of anyone's business. Um, So England had gone no jab, no job. And England fired a lot of healthcare workers. We have a healthcare crisis in England at the moment because they have these amazing people who many of them locked themselves in care homes when the peak hit in the UK in March 2020, they locked themselves in care homes to try not to bring the virus into the care home to try to protect people. Of course, virus is going to do what virus is going to do. And it got into the care homes anyway. And we wiped out more people in care homes and hospitals. The people we were trying to protect, we wiped out more of those than in any other situation. Almost as if putting people together in a home was really not a very good idea. Zoe, there, there are studies that show that the, the, what the, what characterizes flu season is not the weather that a lot of people think, but it's because the weather forces people to go inside. And so I have you heard that also And that, and that's the truth about flu season. The only reason why we have a flu season is because people go inside and that's when the sickness spreads, but actually flu season is all year. The flu is always here. It's always with us, but it spreads because we, because it gets cold and people go inside. And so that the absolute worst thing they could have done, the absolute worst thing they could have done during the this so-called pandemic was to force people inside. Have you heard that narrative? I, I haven't, but it, it makes complete sense. Okay. The time when colds and flu most spread is Christmas, Christmas and New Year. Um, and that's when you mix with the most people in an indoor situation. The heating is on. 
Um, heating just helps germs spread as well. And you find a lot of people finish work 20th of December, start the Christmas week or two week break, and they're sick within a couple of days of starting that break. And it just happens. And people say, oh, why does it always happen over Christmas when I stop working? You could well be right. It's not that you stop working. It's that you move from a um, much more aerated office with desks far further apart to mingling around a party, you know, the kind of parties we used to have when you're shoulder to shoulder and no social distancing and and you pick up loads of germs really quickly. And and you eat a lot of junk food, which gives you an insulin spike, which within hours, uh, I believe, from what I've read, uh, jeopardizes and weakens your immune system within hours. It could. I don't. I don't eat junk food. I you you do. We had a joke, didn't we? When when we were together, you always used to be trying to wind me up, saying I'm vegan today or I'm fasting today, and I never yes. knew if you were being well serious. I know you do many experiments. With I'm ex- I'm experimenting now. I can't wait to tell you what I'm experimenting. With now. <laughs> I can't Don't wait to it. stop I, it. I, I can't. <laughs> I, uh, eat so normal every day. I um I've been eating raw meat. For, okay. For for a week I've been re- eating raw meat. So basically, I wake up. I take a pound of ground beef. I blend it with a third a cube of butter. I add some salt to it, and then throughout the day I eat that. And then I also sprinkle in some avocados and then um, occasionally some leafy greens. And that and I've been doing that for a week. And then I and I mix it with honey sometimes. And, and actually I did it for like seven days straight and I started justifying it. You ready for this? Because, um, let me ask you this first. Is there any truth that eating red, that eating, um, red meat that has carcinogens in it and red meat? No, no, no. no That's one of the things. If you put red meat and cancer in on my site, that's one of the things that I just, I just dispel so many times. It makes no sense. And I saw that. And the ones I read are fantastic, by the way. I read three of them last night. Fantastic. Food. The you know what did um, Peter Cleave say or something? Surgeon Captain. The idea that an ancient food is responsible for modern illness is absolutely yes. absurd. Will you say that one more time? That is brilliant. It is. It's, it's Sir Peter Thomas Cleave. I think he was. He was a surgeon captain in the British Admiral or whatever. And one of his most famous quotes was: "For an ancient food to be um, responsible for modern disease is quite the most absurd thing I ever heard." And it is our most ancestral food. It's the thing that we first started eating at the point that we started really developing as Homo sapiens. So, you know, the Ice Age was supposed to be 30,000 years long, ending about 10,000 years ago. During that period of time, we really would not have had much access to plants. And that's the time when we most evolved. So allegedly we went from Neanderthal to practically rocket scientist on meat and, and non-plant food. And those fats fuel in our brain. So the justification I gave was, is that, okay, so these must have carcinogens in them when they're heated up. That's what must damage the food and give people cancer. And so I'm going to just start eating it raw. Tell me how, <laughs> tell me how flawed my thinking is. <laughs> well, I don't Cause I'm tired of eating raw meat after a week. <laughs> I can't understand why you're doing it. I, I don't think eating cooked meat is a problem. Mm-hmm. So again, there's some, I, I can't even pronounce it, but I looked at something once acrylamide or something where they say, Oh, you mustn't have burnt toast because the the burning is a really bad thing. So I'm thinking all those cavemen sat around the fire and then they put the meat because we discovered fire, what, 350,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago, that kind of time frame, a long time ago in terms of the evolution of food. Can you really imagine the cavemen saying, oh, no, 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 be careful, don't put the meat in the fire, it get all nice and crispy. And, you know, I love those really well done bits, but, you know, it's going to give us cancer. I mean, it's just insane, the stuff that we believe at the moment. We think that the, the food we've been eating for the longest time 
is going to cause us harm. And then somehow these cereals and low-fat yogurts made by Kellogg's and Danone are somehow good for us. Um, how stupid do you have to be that someone has convinced you of that? I mean, <laughs> you, you, you were never convinced of that. Please hey, tell me. You, you will be very proud of me this. I have, I did use, um, uh, you know, obviously hanging around Greg for 15 years every single day um, and, and the stop eating added sugar and refined carbohydrates after over 15 years, I just, I just marched in that direction constantly, nonstop. And about two years ago, I'd say about two years ago, I um I used Paul Saladino's um carnivore diet. I, I ran across that and I decided, okay, I'll I'll allow myself to eat as much meat and hard cheese as I can uh for two weeks. And I did that and basically that broke me of all sugar, all added sugar. And since then, and it's the best I've ever felt in my entire life, I basically for the last year and a half, two years, except for an occasional drink or something, you know, just occasionally I will have no uh, uh, added sugar, refined carbohydrates. And I just use that meat diet, you know, as kind of like a mental thing, just the all meat diet, because then I could eat anything I want. Um, you said, you said something in an interview where you said you were used to be, but by the way, she has what, even better credentials than, uh, a, a degree, um, from Cambridge in math, economics, and a PhD in public nutrition. She's a 20 year vegetarian. She worked <laughs> at Mars and, um, and, and she worked in one of the, uh, she also was, uh, you, you were head of HR for yeah, some company resource, yeah a drug company if you want to really get it out there okay i went from fake food to big drugs as well yeah so she, she worked in, with big pharma she worked for mars uh, she was a 20-year vegetarian and the reason why that's so important is because when you see these when you work in these places you see the mischaracterization of things i'm reading this book right now by a man named um patrick bet david susa what was the name of that book five thinking five moves ahead five your what was it your next five moves. It's a big your next thing. five moves. Yeah. And one of the things in that book he says is when you're trying to solve a problem, don't confuse the issue with the symptom. And so, so like, like people think people are dying of COVID now that that is, that is not what's happening. That is the symptom. The issue is, is that we're in a tsunami of chronic disease, but unfortunately our scientists are so stupid. And, and I mean that in, in the most sincere sense I can, that they're trying to solve the symptom. And, and that and that and, and so so that they're never going to win. And the same thing is true um, when you when you call people. We have a homeless problem in this country, but that's the symptom. The issue is drug addicts. So we have this massive economy that's trying to solve our homeless problem, but that is not the issue. It's like someone's poor and you give them money because you think being poor is the issue. No, the, that's the symptom. The issue is they don't have a job. So it doesn't matter how much money you give them. They they. It's going to be gone in a second. You you can't. And when you have someone like Zoe who has this other experience, she's not going to fall for the mischaracterization of it, of of the real issues. She she she's she. It, it's not um, it's not. Uh, she's not going to fall for low fat shit. <laughs> I didn't even as veggie. I mean, veggies actually um, they they can easily get more calories. I don't care about calories, but they can easily get more calories than meat eaters um i would go to black tie do's and the person next to me would be you would go to what black tie do's they're called so um posh do's when you dress up you wear a ball gown or a cocktail dress or something 
Ah. I was on, on the boards of a couple of organisations. I was on the board of the National Health Service in Wales, so I do know something about the health service. Um, and I was on the board of a university in Wales, Cardiff Metropolitan. Um, and we used to have all these functions when dignitaries would come over. So you'd be at black tie-do's and you'd have a really fancy dinner. Um, and sometimes it would be several courses. And I would quite often look, because I was interested in food, that the person who wasn't veggie was getting a much healthier meal than I was getting. Um, and they would have a nice piece of chicken. Usually chicken is served at those dinners because it's a safe, non-red, non-fish kind of thing. Um, and I would get some enormous pie or pizza or something. So I'm in this, you know, nice little cocktail dress and I'm just feeling as the evening goes wrong, <laughs> my dress just feeling tighter and tighter, all these carbs are going in. You know, you'd have some carb styles. I mean, and that's the thing with vegetarians because the only foods that have zero carbohydrate content are, are pretty much meat and, and fish. Eggs have got a trace, dairy products, it starts to add up. You'll know all of this, having been carnivore. But for a vegetarian, and particularly for a vegan, everything you're eating has got a carbohydrate content. So you end up having a whopping carbohydrate intake because that's the food that you eat. Um, and it was that kind of thing that got me really interested in food. So I would look at things like, well, how does nature provide food? And then you realize that nature actually provides foods that vegans don't eat, which is the healthy stuff, which is meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. And those are your animal-based foods, but they are um, what I call fat proteins. So they've got a trace of carbohydrate, but essentially they're fat and protein. And then you've got the things that vegans do eat and they're carb proteins. And they're the grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, um, again, they have a trace of fat, but they're predominantly carbohydrate and protein. And then you just think that's really interesting. Nature just doesn't put all the macronutrients together. It's really rare that it does. And when it does, it's things like avocados, which is why I smiled when you were saying what you're eating. Um, avocados, nuts and seeds are essentially the only things. And then you look at a human being with a bag of nuts, especially one who's come off fake food. So they've managed to overcome the sugar addiction and the white flour addiction. And you give them a bag of nuts and they can't stop. It becomes the new crave food that yes. they, they can't resist. Yes, and That's because it has this unique fat-carb combo that you don't find in natural foods. That's the, 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 the only time that nature actually puts something together that we find irresistible. We can eat more of it and more of it and more of it. And the fake food manufacturers have latched onto that. So if you think of every fake food that you find irresistible, it's got that fat carb combo. So cookies, muffins, ice cream, confectionery, chocolate, crisps, chips, fries, whatever you guys call them, they have that fat carb combo. And that's the stuff that we can't stop eating. They know what they're doing. They it's so that. interesting you say that when I um when I switched to this raw meat thing in the last week, I I, I told myself I need to stop eating nuts. And nuts have like I, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it's like nine o'clock at night time to eat a pound of nuts. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Stop I, the raw, I mean, seriously, the, the only, I don't even think Paul Saladino would say raw meat. The only possible reason. No, I he doesn't. No, to, to eat raw, but the vitamin that's most destroyed in cooking is obviously vitamin C. Now, if you're only having meat, if you're kind of Sean Baker and you're only having meat, then people will say, oh, where would you get your vitamin C from? You can actually get vitamin C from some parts of the animal. So you can get vitamin C from liver. You can get vitamin C from the thymus gland. 
Um, but then you think, okay, I have to have that raw because otherwise the vitamin C would be destroyed. So I got my hubby Andy, I got him to try having raw liver once just to show that it could be done. And it's disgusting. It kind of slips down like a goldfish in that movie with the with the um, people on Wall Street or whatever, the Wolf of Wall Street. Um, but it can be done. But you don't need to because, of course, your requirement for vitamin C goes down massively, practically to zero if you don't eat refined carbohydrates because your body is going to use up, I think it's vitamin B3 and vitamin C to try to digest those. So you don't have to worry about it. Just like have a nice steak and fry it a little bit on both sides and um, just eat real food. You, A guy like you, you don't have to do strange things, weird things, as I would call them. Just eat real food every day and choose that real food for the nutrients it provides. You've heard me talk, you know, my three principles or whatever. It's a guy chucking down the goldfish um yeah if you eat real food choose that real food for the nutrients it provides then you naturally choose red meat over white oily fish over white fish full fat dairy over low fat dairy eggs and then a few nuts and seeds and green things and that's pretty much all you need to eat and you don't even really need the nuts and seeds and green things you can get everything you need in the animal foods you sound like you sound like a crossfitter Well, you know, I got, I did, um, after getting to know you guys, I did, Andy and I, we did our level one with Davs in Cardiff. So we, um, we took it seriously. We still do something. Most days we have the rest day. We like the rest day, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I was bear crawling across the loft this morning and then doing lunges and we've got weights and we were doing all that stuff and it's so effective. You have to do so little to make such a difference. It's, it's almost a, a sin. It really is. For, for those of you who want to deep dive into that and be entertained at the same time, all you have to do is go to YouTube, type in Zoe, Z O E space H A R. You don't even have to spell out her whole name. It'll come up as the second choice. Uh, click it and you'll see a bunch of videos in 45. There's, there's a ton of great lectures on there. And, in 45 minutes, she will explain to you everything you need to eat, but why you should eat it, why these are – this isn't like some FDA thing. This isn't like, hey, you need this much carbs. You need this. She will explain to you um, what you need to eat and and and, and why, and then and there's others on what you should stay away from. I watched that one the other day. That was my first time watching your fiber lecture. Oh, Holy cow. I had no, I had no, I'm, I'm, I, there's, I guess I'm just dumb. I had no idea fiber was a carbohydrate. Yeah. It's an indigestible carbohydrate. It's even yeah. worse. Yeah. Okay, it's saccharides and disaccharides and polysaccharides and fiber is a, is one of your polysaccharides, many sugars, poly, many saccharide sugars, and it's indigestible. So when people are saying you've got to eat, you know, all this 30 grams of fiber, all this, you know, BS every day, your body can't even digest it. How does that work? I mean, yeah, if I- straight out of um, Kellogg's playbook, I don't know what is. Yeah. And that's a fascinating thing, too. Uh, the um, that whole section in there that basically and I knew that about Kellogg. I knew the whole thing was, hey, circumcise the man and give him cereal and maybe they'll stop masturbating. And I, I, I had heard that. I had read that before, but I didn't know that. The, who was the guy before that? Who was who was part of those shenanigans? Oh, um, oh gosh. Yeah, there was Harvey Kellogg. And then there was um, oh, wrote his- Esther Graham was another one. Yes. Yes. Ellen D. White. I tell you who's done brilliant work in this field. Another person you've got to Google, Belinda Fetke. 
And Gary Fetke, of course, was one of the guests of CrossFit once as well. Belinda yes. Fetke was trying to understand why um, the dietitians were going after her husband, Gary, so strongly. And she has just done some of the best work ever. You've got to get her on your podcast. She's done some of the best work ever. She's, that's his wife, Belinda? Yeah, she's Gary's wife. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'll so, look her up soon. How come yeah. you're not on Instagram? I kind of, I, I kind of opened an account and then I just, I'm so busy. I, I kind of yeah. do Twitter instead, but. Four like, pictures. You have four pictures on there. I know. I mean, I think you either got to do it properly. I see people who do it properly, but then I see the effort it takes. I've got some friends who they're up in the morning and it's like, oh, here's me in an ice bath and they're lighting everything and they've got their makeup. <laughs> yes. Here's yes. what I have for breakfast. And then here's me going to the dentist in the morning. Like, can anyone seriously be interested in my day? What I do at that kind of level? That's really sad. Like just, I just want to live my life. I don't want to kind of document it. Um, you could, you could, uh, just a thought you could, you have all these fabulous slides from your lectures and each of those slides could be a post. Okay. Okay. So then not about me. It's yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I know Andy spends a lot of time just standing in the front yard, throwing the rugby ball <laughs> up in the air as high as he can and then catching it. Maybe he could do it. Andy, Andy goes on Instagram quite a, well, a lot more than I do because I'm never on it. So he will check people out. He likes CrossFit guys. He loves car. And of course, everyone loves car. And yes, so yes. He's always checking out. Has Karen got a lovely new picture? Um, Matt, who we met over in Madison. I'm trying to remember his surname. You'll know him. He's gorgeous. Uh, what's his surname? He, he follows him as well. And he's always showing pictures of him looking really pumped and whatever. That's what you CrossFit guys do all the time. You're always like doing these muscle poses. And it's like, yeah, I can't be bothered. I just, I just, I just post stuff that, um, upsets people. Oh, go on. Like what? <laughs> I, I mean, did you, did you see, did you see the other day what the, uh, CEO of Pfizer said about how the two shots, um, hardly work if at all? Have you seen that? Uh, I have. Yeah. I haven't seen it on your Instagram, but I have seen it. On I, 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 how, how does that like the earth should stop spinning on its axis? We just they're bragging that they got five billion people on the planet to take these shots, and yet this and they made 30 billion dollars in revenue on it, and yet, or maybe it's profit, and yet they don't work if at all. How okay, okay so I'm what if I sold what if what if Ford like all of a sudden was like, dude, we sold 800,000 cars this year and, and they barely work if at all. How I, 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 I feel like I'm just with morons. I feel like I'm just surrounded by morons. By the way, just Zoe, I walk the walk, no mask. My kids go barefoot everywhere. If I go to the park and they have the yellow tape, kids can't play. I cut the tape. Like I don't give like when I test positive, if I test positive for COVID, I still go out. Like, I don't care. I don't need added sugar and refined carbohydrates. I'm doing my part and not a single person like me has died on the planet. I post stuff like that on Instagram. Show me one healthy person that's died. One. One. I'd say just one, one. Yeah. Okay. Two. <laughs> okay. So the numbers did not surprise me. If Matt yeah. is um is still listening, if he puts yeah. Chad, I think it will just come up with C-H-A-D mm-hmm. in the search box on my site. And it should go back to a post that I did in December, 2020. So in December, 20, that Pfizer jab was approved. And they originally did a press release. And and because when you said, oh, I get into the numbers, that's what I like doing. That did not surprise me at all, that CEO. He was basically saying what his original research said back in December 20, but nobody understood what it was saying. 
So they had this press release. There you go, Chad, the Lancet paper. So I put it in quite discreetly because if I'd have put in the title, the Pfizer jab effectiveness is seriously unimpressive, I wouldn't have got anywhere. I'd have had subscribers leaving and everyone upset and all the rest of it. It had only just been approved. Everyone was like, this is our get out of jail. This is marvellous. So what people didn't realise when the first Pfizer press release came out and it was they said this is 90 percent effective. That was based on 94 positive PCR tests. So they had a trial of approximately 44,000 people. 22,000 people were given a proper saline placebo. That was different to the AstraZeneca, where they were given an alternative injection. They were given the meningitis. Pfizer was a proper placebo. 22,000 get the placebo. 22,000 get the actual jab. And so they have 94 positive PCR tests with at least one symptom, which quite frankly could have been a, <coughs> I've got a bit of a cough and that's it. Um, and we now know because there's been a whistleblower from the Pfizer trial that that data was easy to sabotage and and, and was uh, basically, she's come out and said that. So those 94 people were basically 85, they managed to get into the placebo group and nine, they managed to get into the vaccine group. And if you have 85 minus nine, which adds up to 94, 85 minus 9 divided by 85 is 90%. Now, about a week later, they managed to have their first publication. And I think, see if I can remember, I think the Pfizer one went in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition or JAMA or something like that. And then the AstraZeneca one went in the Lancet. They both went in really esteemed publications. So we'll stick with Pfizer. So this time they had 170 positive PCR tests with at least one symptom. They managed to have lost one person so we're no longer nine in the Pfizer trial. We're now down to eight. But they what, know, what do you mean they lost a person? I don't know. But it's just when they did the press release, they said there are nine people who have tested positive in the Pfizer arm of the intervention, those 22,000 people. But then when it came to being reported in the academic journal, which is the peer-reviewed bit, they said, OK, we've only got eight in the Pfizer arm and then we've got 162 in the placebo arm. So, again, the math is 162 minus eight over 162 is 95%. And they went out to market saying this is 95% effective. Now, I say somewhere in that post, I, I put all the COVID posts on open view because I wasn't having anyone saying you're making money out of COVID or whatever. I just want to get the information out there. Um, and I said, if you stopped people in the street, stop 100 people in the street and say, what do you think 95% effectiveness means? If you find 100 smart people that can even work out at any level what it might mean, they will say, okay, so if 100 people get exposed to the virus and they're vaccinated, 95 of them won't get it. Yes, yes. It doesn't yes. mean that at all. 99% of people in both the placebo and the drug group didn't get the virus. At one point, they were talking about deliberately. Is this what absolute and relative yes. is? Yes, this is exactly it. And this is one of the things that in almost every paper, when I say I have to unpack and point out a flaw, almost every bit of nutritional epidemiology. So nutritional epidemiology is where they take a population. So they didn't do a trial. This is an actual proper trial. Nutritional epidemiology is just say where they, they say, well, okay, we follow some people in Framingham. That was one of the most famous ones. We'll just follow them over time and we'll get loads of details on them at the beginning. So we'll find out how much they weigh, how much exercise they do. Do they smoke? Do they drink? What do they eat? We'll only ask them their dietary stuff at the beginning. Then we'll maybe ask them another 10 years later. But then we'll just follow them over time and we'll see which ones develop heart disease or lung cancer or 
high blood pressure or anything else. And then we just make an association with the original data. So we're like, ah, look, all the smokers are much more likely to get lung cancer. That That's a good observation. Um, and then you should go and test that in a trial. But of course, it's so striking, it would be unethical to do it, to say, right, we'll get 22,000 people and we'll put 11,000 of them on cigarettes and we'll put the other 11,000 on not cigarettes and then we'll follow them and see which ones get lung cancer. It's like, it's so high. You don't yeah. have to do that trial. You know, you don't, you don't. So has to- it never been scientifically proven that smoking causes cancer? No, it, we, we've not actually done a proper randomized controlled trial on that. It is given as the example of the thing that shows you don't need to do a randomized controlled trial. And there are some other things. Okay, so Malcolm Kendrick talks about this one. He says, you don't need to do a randomized controlled trial to show that a parachute is a good idea if you're going to jump out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. You got it. So um, there okay. are some cases when you don't need to do it. But basically, nutritional epidemiology is just following that population over time. So what they do is um, they'll take, uh, they'll, they'll you end up comparing two completely different people. So, Um, Let's take in New York, you've got really different people in New York. So you've got people in New York who are disadvantaged, have got not two pennies to two cents to rub together, um, no education, dropped out of education, probably taking drugs, probably part of a gang, um, just no advantage in life. You know, life's guys that didn't get the, the good cards dealt. And then also in New York, you've got the people who've got the fabulous apartment overlooking Central Park, and they can have a personal chef and the personal trainer, and their kids go to brilliant school, and they go skiing, and they go off to the Caribbean, and they're just two completely different people. And it just so happens that the first people are more likely to be eating burgers and fries and having fast food and eating junk, because you can just get a lot more junk for $1 than you can caviar or sushi or something. And then it just happens that the guys in sunny side, upstate New York um, are more likely to be eating legumes and kale and, um, you know, carrots fried in, you know, exotic ginger and all that kind of thing. They are completely different kind of people. So they look at these people at the beginning and they end up in the same kind of population study being compared. And they say, oh, look at these people who eat legumes and kale and kumquat you know, they, they end up not having as much cancer and not having as much heart disease. It's like they just end up having a far better life in all kinds of ways. They have better income. They have better access to medical health care. A lot of these studies are done in the US where it's really important, the medical health care access. Um, they have better education. They just have better everything. But what you're saying is if only those really downtrodden, disadvantaged people ate like those really rich, advantaged people, everything would be equal. That's what nutritional epidemiology and Gary Taubes puts that better than anyone I've ever heard put it. And that, that's how he'll say it at conferences. You're trying to say that if only they ate like the really advantaged people, then they would have the health of the advantaged people, but they won't. And what do they say instead? What do they say instead? So, so they, 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 I mean, the, the nutritional epidemiology is arguing um, that it, it's the legumes that made the difference. If only oh. they ate legumes, they wouldn't have heart disease. They wouldn't have cancer. They wouldn't have diabetes. Um, it's like, no, if only they had access to healthcare, if only they ate better as an entire diet, if only they didn't smoke, if only they didn't drink, if only they didn't have no exercise other than kicking around on the street corner trying to get a job or something. Um, it, it's just insane the way that they assume that diet can. What I say is they assume that diet is the maker of health. I say it's the marker of health. 
So I say when you observe the person eating legumes, you've described a kind of person who eats legumes. The, the legumes didn't make them healthy. The healthy person is eating legumes. So you can't then assume that, oh, if only the unhealthy person ate legumes, they'd be as healthy as the healthy person. No, they wouldn't. They'd still be disadvantaged and uneducated and low income and in a gang and no access to healthcare. They'd still have all of those other problems and they would still and, die many years younger. And you use the term educated uh very loosely. There's two countries that had really, really low COVID death rates, Mongolia and Haiti. These are extremely poor countries. And yet for some reason after the, the United States felt like it was very important to get uh, vaccines over to Haiti. But the reason why and, and, th and this is true, this is true for parts of uh, rural India also that no, no one died of COVID there also because they don't have access to Western foods. When I mean poor, I don't mean poor like the United States. The poorest person, person in the United States still has greater tools than the richest person in the United States had 50 years ago. We have homeless people. We have drug addicts on the street with iPhones. I mean, it's it's um, and, and, and access to all sorts of, of, of great stuff. So it, it's it's fast. That's also a fascinating piece to me. You have these really educated people thinking that Haiti needs vaccines. They, they, they don't. They don't because they don't they don't even have enough money to get to McDonald's. They're, they're, you know, you know, it's um, and, and same same thing with me in Mongolia. Those those people they in I saw pictures of the people who've died of covid in Mongolia. They're all the bureaucrats and they're crazy obese. I don't yeah. want to lose. The, we got onto the relative um, absolute risk. Oh yes, that'd be my fault. I, I went off somewhere. No, else. no, no. I, um, I don't want to lose that because that's so important. So we, we pointed out that basically their numbers were based on one six two minus eight yeah. over one six two, which is ninety five percent. So I then pointed out that's what people in the street would think that ninety five percent of people won't get it. That's not what it thinks. Ninety nine percent of people in both groups didn't get it. So in that post, um, and in one, I also did one in December 21, if you put in efficacy NNT in the search box, I, I did one in December 21 that just kind of reinforced, um, guys, we called this a year ago, people are now getting surprised at waning vaccine effectiveness, it was never effective. Um, and you can work out from the numbers that they gave us in that trial paper, you could work out absolute risk. You can then work out numbers needed to treat. And I go through it all on the site. So I explain how we get to it. I put the tables in and everything. And I think the numbers needed to treat was somewhere around 300, even when they were claiming that the efficacy was around 90, 95%. So you've got to treat 300 people to avoid one person getting a positive PCR test, which might be a false positive, and right. one symptom, which might be a little cough. And this was in healthy people. This was not in elderly people. This was not in immunocompromised people. This was not in children and, 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 and that's, that's what they went into bat with to, with the aim of vaccinating 7 billion people on the planet with 170 positive PCR tests. Oh, it's crazy when you say it like nobody that. knows it's, that. It's crazy. I, I, I want to explain it. I want to explain it because it's in a different way, and hopefully, people will get it. Basically, what you're saying, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here. If you have a thousand people, if you have two groups of people, a thousand each, and and one of them you give the medicine to, and uh, and and one person dies. Sorry, and, and, yeah, if one of them you give medicine to and one person dies from whatever the illness is, and then this other group, you have a thousand people and they're the control group and you don't give a medicine and two people die, they're saying that the effectiveness is 100%? Yeah, double. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. 
yeah. and that's how they report it. Yeah. That's how statins work, right? That's the statin scam. That's the statins thing. But then the, what they do, which is even more naughty in a lot of these papers, they will report the benefit as relative risk. So they'll say um, statins will give you a 20% extra chance of avoiding a heart attack or something. Um, and it might be exactly the, the example that you've just given. But then they'll report side effects as absolute risk. So they'll oh. um, But only one in 100 people will suffer muscle side effects. Um, and, and even that isn't true because you go and look at the patient leaflet for statins. Wow. A list of things that will say these are experienced by, um, they'll have very rare, rare, quite common, very common. And they're sort of very common is, I think they still only call it common. It will be experienced by one in 10 people. So in the statin patient leaflet, they'll say, you'll get um, a risk of high blood glucose levels. You're likely to get muscular aches, headaches. I can't remember the the other things. Don't quote me directly on that one, but just, just Google patient leaflet for Lipitor and the patient leaflet. And I know this from the time that I worked in a drug company on the management team, a patient leaflet has to be accurate by law. It will be the most accurate of all literature that is ever released by the drug company, because if it's not, the management team can go to jail um, and we used to have a head of regulatory on our management team and she used to impress upon us all the time, guys, this is the thing we need to get right. Because if we don't, any of the management team members can end up in jail and I didn't want to end up in jail and nor did the head of marketing or the head of sales or anything else. So we take it really, really seriously. It will be the most accurate thing that you see. And it says, you know, read any patient leaflet, read the pa- patient leaflet for some vaccines. Um, they, they do have patient leaflets for vaccines. You might think they don't because... You don't go to the the doctor and then the doctor says, um, okay, here's an antidepressant or something. And then you've got a patient leaflet in the pack because you don't actually administer the vaccine to yourself. You go to a center and someone administers it. You kind of don't get the box that's got the patient leaflet in it, but you can see it online. You can look up a patient leaflet for measles or for Gardasil. Um, There's almost certainly one for, oh, actually, that'd be interesting to see if there is actually one for some of the COVID jabs because um, they're all still under emergency use. So not only are we trying to jab 7 billion people on the back of 170 positive PCR tests, um, we might still be under the um, the emergency use. So what I would be Googling would be that Chad name or um, the Pfizer one is is something like BN Tech. You, you go for the technical name, um, put in the technical name, patient information leaflet, and, and that's how you get it. I'm sure Matt will be on the case or anyone can check later. Zoe, this is fascinating to me. This, this is completely unethical. They'll do the side effects with absolute and the effectiveness with relative. Yeah. yeah. And so when, when they say all this, and I've tried to analyze the the data. So I've been in a bit of a a row with the people who do the statin data in the UK. Um, So what happens is paper gets published and it says um, you're 20% less likely to, suffer a heart attack if you're on statin. So I want to go to the raw data and I don't read the text. I just look at the tables. I'm a numbers person. So I want to get right into the detail. And then I can do what you just did with that one in a thousand, two in a thousand. I can see what the absolute numbers are and I can see the absolute difference. Um, And okay, if it's the case that in every 100 people, 20 fewer would have a heart attack, that's a big difference. But what if it's in every... 10,000 people, 20 fewer, um, you've still got a 20% relative risk difference, but suddenly it's really not that impressive. 
Um, so it's what I like doing with those kind of papers. I'll get into the, the detail of the paper. I'll find the numbers that will give me the absolute risk difference that I'm looking for. So you go to the statin papers that come out of, um, there's a group called the um, CTSU in the UK. What does it stand for? The um, something um, trialist, collaborative trialists, um, CT, God, I should know this, um, something unit or whether the they're the treatment trialists looking at all the statin trials they get. Um, last time I did the conflicts of interest on those guys, they had something like three hundred million pounds from the drug companies. Um, serious? Yeah, serious, and and it will be even more now. Um, oh, and, here, yeah. here it is. Uh, yeah, it's I'm kicking myself. It's like not knowing what FDA stands for. Um, treatment service unit, collateral treatment service unit, whatever. They're the statin guys. Okay. And in the papers that they publish in The Lancet, they don't include the raw data that can be used to analyze the, the data. So I go to look at the paper thinking, I'm going to find out what the absolute risk is, and it's going to be really unimpressive. And then I can counter this 20% with what the actual truth is. And they don't have the data. So I remember writing to them back in 2012 saying, please, can you send me the data? And they try to be really patronizing. Oh, you know, all the data sets like, no, this is what I need, because then I can work this out. And they say, well, we can't release that. It's commercially sensitive. Um, but you're not conflicted, but it's commercially sensitive that you can't release the data that I need to be able to. What is, that doesn't even mean anything for starters, commercially sensitive. It's just nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just give me the data so I can analyze it. So yeah. if you put in the search box on my site, if you put in over 75, 75S, I think you'll get a post up from probably January 2019. And in one paper, they released the data that I had been looking for in all the other papers. How um, did you finally get it? Um, well, they did. They, they, so I've still not been able to get the, the really important statin data, which is their claims on everyone. Um, but they did it. There it is. Statins in the over 75. So they did a particular paper. Um, that's no, it's the first one. So it's the February 2019 one. Yeah, go, go back to the other one. So it's the February 2019 one. Um, statins in the over 75s. Um, Has your site ever been attacked? Have you ever no, had your site hubby, pulled down? My hubby does my tech and he's pretty good. He's really okay. good. At um, yeah, we're pretty locked down in terms of where you can access it from, where you can do admin from. Okay. Um, it, it's basically here in this room and we can't edit it if we're away on, you know, we can't do certain things. So it, it's pretty secure. But anyway, in this one, whether it was a mistake or not, I don't know. But they did this paper and they announced that if only everyone in the UK over 75 took statins, um, all these lives would be saved. And they held a big press conference because it was a group that they hadn't managed to completely get on statins. And it's a big group. It's a few million people in the UK. If you can get everyone in the US, it's even bigger. Um, so I, I, the data were there. I was so excited. So I look at the data and the tables did not show what they claimed. So... To, to have claimed what they did, first of all, they had to be effective in, in what we call primary prevention. So you haven't yet had a heart attack. We're trying to prevent one. OK, so you go to the tables for primary prevention and in the numbers for the over 75s, they were what we call not statistically significant. So they could have happened by chance. So they didn't count. You had to ignore them. Any researcher with five minutes working in research would know you have to ignore um, those data. And, and, then, and what, what makes something st st statistically okay. insignificant? 
Okay, so the easiest way to see it, they give you what they they call a relative risk. Uh-huh. So say the relative risk. Um, so in your example, where you were saying, um, let's let's take the the twenty percent difference. So okay. if if your baseline number is one, then a twenty percent difference is represented by one point two. Okay. So they'll say the person on statins we're going to use as the baseline, and their incident level is one, and then the person not on statins has got a risk ratio of 1.2. So they're 20% higher. They, that, that's how they measure it. 1.2 versus 1, that's your 20% higher. Okay. Now they give what they then call a 95% confidence interval, which is we are 95% confident that that number 1.2 that we gave is in a particular range. Okay. So that particular range should be something like 1.18 to 1.22. So it's, okay. it's a nice little narrow range and it's nowhere near one. The key thing is if your confidence interval in- includes that number one, which was also your baseline, it could have happened by chance. You haven't got a differential. You've basically, if you imagine sort of two curves that you're two normal distributions that you're comparing, they overlap so much that you can't say that they're significantly different. So you say, okay, okay. Not significantly different so any range that confidence interval anytime it includes 1.0 or even touches 1.0 you should not declare it as statistically significant so you'll see the examples in that blog post that i did where i show this is the claim that they've made for the over 75s this is the claim that they've made for over 75s who haven't already had a heart attack and neither of those are statistically significant they they include that line of no effect and they would know that they know that it's scientific fraud. They absolutely, you're trying to tell me an Oxford researcher with 30 years funding from the pharmaceutical industry doesn't know what statistically significant is. It was so outrageous. It was almost like the most it's, outrageous one I'd ever seen. You think it's so fraudulent that before they published it, they went to their lawyers and they said, and it, like they even they even know that it might be called, like there's a whole contingency plan if they get called on it? No, I think it was even more interesting than that. So they published the paper. Because they, um, but people don't read the paper in the way that I read a paper. Most people don't. Clearly, the peer reviewers let it through. So, right. you know, I think the peer reviewers should never be allowed to peer review again because it's on their watch. Right. What they did, they were really cute. So they published the paper, and they then separately held a press conference to talk about the paper, and then they invite the Times, the Telegraph, all the important publications in the UK. So the next day's headlines are if only over 75s in the UK would all take statins, 8,000 lives could be saved. And that's the headline that they wanted. So you look, that that headline is not in the paper. That headline didn't have to go through peer review. That headline was a statement made by one of the funded researchers whose name was, was, he was one of the primary researchers on the paper. So all he has to do is to say that in a press release, and then it's in all the papers the next day, the average person is then going to their doctor saying, oh, I need to be on statin stock. Look, my life could be saved. Yeah, yeah. And they've done what they wanted to do. The fact that the evidence, the academic paper didn't say that, it's like, who cares? Nobody's going to read the academic paper. The Times is not going to look at the academic paper. They should, but they won't. So, when in reality, the data shows that women over 65 with higher cholesterol live longer than women with lower cholesterol. Yeah. yeah. Women generally right? have higher cholesterol and lower incidence of heart disease. How does that uphold the cholesterol theory? 50% of the population immediately defeat the cholesterol hypothesis. And then you find as you get older, your cholesterol. It's crazy. 
It's so it's so crazy. It's so corrupt. The, 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 the second one is the older people, the older you get, the lower your cholesterol is because your body needs a lot of cholesterol made to repair cells. And you just generally get less good at everything as you get older. So your cholesterol is lower as you get older, but your heart disease is vastly higher as you get older. So age and sex, the two biggies with heart disease, defeat the cholesterol hypothesis in one fell swoop. Don't read an academic paper. That's all you need to know. And the older you get, the more sex you should have if you want to stay healthy. Is that was that, that was just let me? Well, you need problem. cholesterol. You yeah. need cholesterol, which is why you don't want to be on statins if you're hoping to to have lots of of fun times. Yeah. Um, the older you get, the lower your cholesterol gets, and maybe that's why you feel less interested in in sex. The older you get, I don't know. I'm still I'm I'm not old yet, so I'm I'm still good. You're you, still you good. don't you don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> hey, um, there's this so. I was looking at uh, measles because there's this, you know, with all the vaccine stuff coming. And my wife had been telling me for years when we had kids that uh, vaccines are just complete hogwash and bullshit. And she would give me a list of all and give me all these papers to read. And I was like, what are you talking about? But then this and I was just thought I had some crazy wackadoodle wife. Well, then this covid vaccine came out and the very first study that I saw, well, even before the vaccine came out, the very first study that I saw. And this is thanks to people like you and Greg Glassman being involved in my life. The very first study that I saw coming out of China, this is very, very early on. I want to say this is maybe in January or February. It's not even a study, just numbers. It was that the vast, vast majority of of people dying in China were men over 65 who had been smoking for 30 years. But then the the article read, um, this kills um, smokers and old people. And I'm like, there's no proof that it kills um, old people, like in my mind. Because it's just a correlate. You would have to you would have to separate these and you have to study old people basically meaning old the older you are, the longer you can be complicit in your demise. So someone who's 80 can drink soda pop for 50 years, as opposed to someone who's 30 can't, but you can't just draw the conclusion that it's because they're old. And I had a C Malhorta on the show and we were talking about it, and he was saying that age is the biggest factor. And I said, I don't think you can say that. I don't I don't. And he said, actually, you're right. They they haven't done. And I, th- I don't know what this exact I'm going to use this. I don't know what it means. They haven't done a randomized control study on old people and the virus. They just have made this assumption that I think that your immune system wanes as you get older and therefore it's the biggest factor. But the the old people. So I start going down this ra- these rabbit holes and right away, then I'm not afraid of the virus because I don't smoke. Oh, and you know who the second biggest group of people who died was? It was the women who lived with these smokers. That was the second biggest group of deaths. And I'm like, well, this is a respiratory disease and a metabolic disease, and it's just another virus, and I'm tripping. Like everyone on that, if it was dangerous, everyone on that boat should have died. But that that is really interesting because the data that I first look, looked at didn't come out of China. Where um, did you what did you look at? I looked day? the first data that I looked at was back in March 2020, two okay. years ago, and it was from Italy. And it was also very, very soon behind from New York because um, New York yeah. had incredible data that came out. Italy said it's not hitting smokers. Italy was the first country that made us start thinking this is not a respiratory illness. This is a this is a cardiovascular illness. It's a metabolic mm-hmm. illness, as you've just said. It's a sticky blood illness. It's an illness that the New York data was striking. It showed that if you had a BMI over 40, really – um, significant BMI levels, you were something like six times more likely to have a bad outcome. And a bad outcome meant you'd go into hospital, you'd end up in the ICU and or you would die. 
but smokers, the Italian data, because there's a lot of smokers in Italy. The Italian yes, data, yes, and I went straight there with that too. I yeah. went straight with that too. I think Italy has the highest smoking rate in all of Europe or something like that. It's crazy. So, it, sorry, it go on. Have, but it, it wasn't killing smokers. That was really interesting. It was killing it was killing people with a high BMI. I like what you're saying. You know, is is it age or is it just that you've had longer to be able to have a bad outcome? Um, we all know people who are in their 80s who are still slim fit, um, eat well, eat kind of how they were brought up to eat, and they've been fine. Um, you know, I've got friends who've got parents who've been fine, and then you'll hear the rare story of somebody who was 50 years old and everyone says, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with them, and then they died with COVID. And it's like, well, I think there would have been something wrong with them. They would have had diabetes or um, high triglycerides or metabolic syndrome of some kind and, and perhaps didn't realize it. And also our treatment. I mean, was this the first disease in the world that we just decided could not be treated? Um, well, I mean, I mean, here, here, here's a healthy, the, 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 some healthy people did die. Here's a healthy boy who, who, who died of COVID. Um, I mean, except for the fact that his ears are missing and his neck is gone. Other than that, he's, he's, he's so, so I scour every healthy person. They say, I made it my job for the first year and a half. I've stopped since then. Every single health and there, there isn't one there, 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 they, they say ultra marathoner dies. And I do some research on the guy and the guy's six, four, 140 pounds. And he lives on goo packs. And I immediately look at, so I start studying leptin receptors, insulin, and how they affect NK cells and T cells. And a five-year-old can watch the YouTube videos on it and realize that if you have, if you have a ton of insulin in your bloodstream and your leptin resistance, your, your whole immune system has gone to shit. Then I find out that the guys who are on the Tour de France are the most susceptible to sickness of any professional athletes in the world because they're, they're so stressed and they live off of, uh, refined carbohydrates. And I'm like, holy shit, like this is, this is. This, this, this is what I, I, I hate to keep going back to Greg, but in 15 years that I worked with Greg, he would tell us the tsunami of chronic disease is coming. It's coming. It's coming. And now it's here. And instead of realizing it's the tsunami of chronic disease, that's killing people. They're pointing at this virus when it, when it's, they've missed, they've mischaracterized the issue. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, your whole, your whole did website. You, um, did you see the British prime minister in January of this year, Boris Johnson? Yeah did a little thing. He was trying to get everybody to get the booster because yeah. the CEO said, oh, two's not working. Everyone, they tried to get everyone done in December, which is just crazy because you put your immune system on the floor, bang, in the middle of Christmas and New Year, and everybody was going down with either COVID or pneumonia or chest infection or whatever, dropping like flies around me. Anyway, we were fine, obviously. Um, but Boris Johnson comes out in January and says, just go and get your booster. It's much easier than it's your best New Year's resolution. It's just much easier than diet or exercise, which is kind of what we would normally start doing in January. And it's like, oh, you, you, it's you vile, be, Zoe. It's vile. The one thing that is actually going to help you can imagine if two years ago when we knew we had the data out of New York and we said, guys, if you have got a high BMI, you're going to be in trouble. I'm really sorry, because we know that losing weight really is difficult. It really is difficult it's been made difficult in so many different ways the evidence is not good for success you and I know what you've got to do is basically ditch all the junk food and get down to high nutrient low carbohydrate it is difficult for sugar addicts very difficult and the companies have made us sugar addicts so we know what people are up against but if we'd have said back then just lose five percent of your body weight you can do that in two weeks doesn't matter what weight you are you can do that in two weeks and then if you're over 40 BMI, start trying to get down to 35 and then start trying to get down to 30. Two years on, 
we could have had millions more healthy people no longer at risk from this virus, any virus, any metabolic illness. But we didn't. We just said, stay indoors, close the gyms, close CrossFit, keep the takeaways open. God forbid that we actually shut McDonald's or KFC. All and, of that stayed open in my in my state. All and of that it, did in, it did in the UK as well. And you've now got research coming out saying, oh, we gained weight during lockdown. We got less fit during lockdown. It's like, no, that's a shocker. I better review that one on my Monday night. How did that happen? Insane. Um, I want to talk to you about food addiction. Okay. I had a guy on yesterday who weighed 515 pounds and, he, and now he weighs 215 pounds. He lost 300 pounds. And, and he said he's a food addict and he, he received bariatric surgery. And what was interesting is he had a quote on his Instagram. Um, in a nutshell, there's this uh, – he had it from uh, Henry Ford, the automaker. But there's this Taoist saying that Lao Tzu said, um, if you argue your limitations, they're yours. And when I hear people say they're addicted to food, I feel, I hear, part of me wants to claim that that is not a piece of, that that is, if it has any value, it should just be temporary and that at some point you should ditch that. You want your, you don't want that as part of your identity. But, but I also heard you say that when you were young, you were addicted to food and that, um, and you also talk about uh, satiety the 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 awareness of being full and so I'm, I'm painting this picture here i don't i don't really ever feel full i don't ever actually i i have to like be conscious of what i eat i don't i'm never like okay that's good i'll keep eating until i hurt <laughs> i um, don't I, I, and i like i like your anecdote there and i like what that guy said and i like the henry ford um and i would subscribe to that as well i'm not a food addict but but you but you uh, i was i'm I'm not now you could i could go to work you know i worked in mars for goodness sake right so in in mars and i worked upstairs so i was above the production line mostly i worked in mars electronics so i wasn't in the food bit but i ended up in the food bit and i i worked in the chocolate factory in slough which is the most famous of the mars factories across the world and upstairs you had, um, you know, marketing sales, the, the people wearing normal clothes. And then downstairs in the factory, you had the people wearing whites making the chocolate. And you could go down on the factory floor and, and check. In fact, we were encouraged to. So at the end of each line was kind of quality testing, because if anything was wrong with the M&Ms or the Mars bars or Snickers bars or anything, if we could catch it before it left the factory, we saved ourselves a fortune. Right. So the, the factory workers, would, you know, the brown racks when you go into a 7-Eleven store and you've got those racks that are just covered in confectionery and all those kind of things. We had those all around the office. So we're in an open plan office. Everywhere you walk, there's a brown rack because the idea is that we were the taste testers. So if we found anything, maybe the Maltesers were not crunchy or they something had gone wrong, we could phone straight down to the factory. That would be today's batch. It wouldn't leave um, and, and you'd catch it. Um, I mean, it was so rare that anything was wrong, but if something was wrong, we would catch it. But I could just eat crap chocolate to my That's amazing. All day long. God, and I that's really a dream. Crazy. That's a 10-year-old's dream. Oh, my God. But everyone, when I joined and, and everyone said, oh, everyone gains a stone in the first month. A stone is 14 pounds to Americans. Wow. wow. So I do not want to gain a stone in the first month. Um, but I had to fight like crazy. I'm surrounded by all this candy and I'm trying not to eat it. I could go and work in that factory now and I wouldn't touch it. I, right. I could, it would hold no interest 
for me whatsoever. I don't try it because I know if you do, you think, oh, that tastes good because it's made to taste good. And then you you start heading down that slope. So I don't I don't eat that stuff. You know, somebody says, do you want a biscuit? It's like, no, thank you. Um, I haven't had a biscuit this century. Wow. I didn't set out to not have a biscuit. Sorry, you call them cookies. Sorry. I didn't set out to not have a cookie this century. It's just that's how it worked out. Yeah. Um, I just don't eat cookies. So you don't eat cookies for a lot of days. You end up not having eaten cookies for 21 years. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you, but you work at it. You're diligent. You're, you're strong. You, you went to, you went to war with sugar inside of yourself, right? To, to sort of. I did, but once, once you get to the point, to, to me, it's just, um, I, I guess it's like if you're an alcoholic, if you're an alcoholic, you just really advise not to touch alcohol. And people say, oh, it's so much more difficult being addicted to food because you've got to eat. You don't have to drink, but you do have to eat. Okay. You have to eat, but there's certain foods that you don't have to eat. So I made the decision that I don't eat crap. Um, I don't eat the only, I do have sugar in one form. I like dark chocolate. You might remember that from having been around me. I always have 85% dark chocolate somewhere close to hand and barely, and I don't think any day would go by when I wouldn't have some 85% dark chocolate. Um, and when I was doing, what about honey? Do you eat honey? No, it's sugar. Mm. It's sugar with a bit of water. So sucrose is 100% sucrose. It's dry. Um, it doesn't get sticky. Honey is about 87% sugar and the rest is water, which is why it's sticky. So if you add water to the sugar jar, you'll end up with sticky sugar, which is kind of like honey. Why Why would you do that? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you this. So the, the week, I, th- this is the second time this has happened. So this whole week I was basically just eating raw meat, some leafy greens and avocados. And yesterday my, my feet started getting cold, like my toes. And I was like, oh, I remember this the last time I did the carnivore diet. And I remember the next thing after that is I started being able to hear my heartbeat a little bit, like in a way that I wasn't familiar with. So um, none of those sound, none of those side effects sound from just someone who's just eating what you've talked to Sean Baker, does he have any of those issues from just eating, um, does he eat any sugar? He's, he's, he's interviewed me more than I've interviewed him kind of thing. So yeah, I haven't asked him that. Um, I don't personally do any of this stuff. So yeah, low carb conferences and people are in, a, in the middle of a three day five, even had someone who's just arrived at a conference and they've just ended a seven day fast or something. And they're no different in size to me. You know, I'm, um, again, you do it in pounds, don't you? So I'm seven, about seven stone nine so that's seven fourteens which is 98 i'm about 107 pounds or something you know call it 110 who cares um not heavy enough to give blood in the united states you couldn't donate no, blood. not either in the uk which <laughs> really that's like my mom yeah i know i'm i'm, I'm quite happy with that actually because it's one of my uh, one of my phobias um so yeah you know and i and i just eat normally every day i don't I don't eat junk at Christmas. So when you said, oh, we all mix over Christmas and eat junk and get low immunity. I don't. I just, I eat pretty much yeah. the same every day. I eat, I eat the nutritious foods and I eat dark chocolate. I have chocolate mousse most days because I put dark chocolate in with cream. And I, I wonder if that, if that helps. So, so last night I had a little tiny, just a tiny bit of pasta. Uh, it, it was pasta made from rice. Okay. Rice pasta. Yeah. Rice pasta. And, yeah. um, and I had it with a, a bunch of cooked uh, meat and within, uh, I'd say 30 minutes, all of those issues in my feet went away. It was crazy. So something circulatory. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. We should be fat adapted. So, I mean, you you know the Professor Tim Noakes, the whole, and, and um, Jeff Follick and um, Steve Finney, you, you'll know this whole area about being fat adapted. So you need to get your, any any athlete worth their salt needs to get to the point where they're fat adapted because the, the body will always use any available glucose if it can. Stored glucose is obviously glycogen. We've got about 14, 1500 calories available in glucose stored glycogen at any one time. Um, which is why you were saying about the Tour de France guys, they just eat junk the whole time because they're forever fueling in these gel um, gel packs. You know, they tear the top off them and glug this gloopy, disgusting stuff down. They're just trying to get glucose into them the whole time. Um, I don't know if they're also fat adapted. I think it could be um, game changing if any of them became fat adapted because you want to get to the point that your body can fuel on fat because even the if you're... The CrossFit athletes claim you lose your explosiveness when you become fat adaptive, that you need glucose for the explosiveness. You do. Um, but I still think you should be fat adapted because so you've got to have the body able to flick that switch to start fueling on fat when you run out of those 14, 1500 calories. So instead of just reaching for the next piece of glucose, so you're just this constant conveyor belt of glucose. That's why Professor Tim Noakes ended up as type two diabetic, because he was a slim elite athlete running marathons, Ironman triathletes, or, you know, all that kind of thing. Loads of them end up as type two diabetic because they just chuck in glucose every 30 minutes, whatever they need to, to just keep the fuel up. You've like got hummingbirds, to, like hummingbirds. Yeah. So you've got to get to the point and you will go through a dip in your performance. So you need to decide when you're going to do it. You need to do it after one games and, and the longest time possible before the next games. And basically to become fat adapted, you need to go really low carb for long enough. And Finney and Volek are the experts on this and Prof Notes. And they would probably say, you're probably looking at somewhere around four to six weeks of really low carb. And then the body is just like, damn it, I'm so frigging hungry. I'm going to access that fuel. And even a marathon runner like Paula Radcliffe, who still holds the marathon record for women, she's about my size um, and weight. Even we have got, I don't know, 40,000 calories of fat. Um, you know, let, let's say I'm 100 pounds. Keep the maths easy. Um, even if you're um, 14% fat, um, you're looking at 14 pounds of fat. Now, the calorie theory is wrong. That's another thing that I've blown apart. But let's say a pound of fat approximates to three and a half thousand calories. You can see that you're looking at 40,000 calories of fat fairly easily on even the tiniest marathon running person. So the body is going to run out of 1500 calories of glucose and it's got 40,000 calories of fat available. Who is going to win? If you know what happens at the CrossFit Games, we've both been there. They pull a nasty one and they have you swimming across Madeline, Madison Lake or whatever, and then paddle boarding and then running and something that is really going to use up those glycogen. Hours long. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Now, do you want to be the person that's still chucking in the glucose or do you want to be the person that when you had that moment on the lake and the glucose wasn't to hand, you were able to flick into fat burning? Um, now, you still need glucose for the explosive events. Um, Volek, Finney, Noakes would all say this. If you're a 400-meter runner, if you're doing anything anaerobic, you you will fuel on glucose. You are not fueling on fat. But you want to be able to do both. Um, yeah, I've never really heard. I've never thought of that before. I didn't know it was so dynamic. I thought you were one or the other. I thought you either run on gas or on diesel. At any one time you are. But the ability to be able to fuel on both um, and, and what happens when you stop being a sugar addict is you just get cranky and tired 
for those first few weeks because your body's saying, where's the quick fuel? Where's the quick fuel? I'm used to that. That's what I fuel on. Every time your energy would dip, you know, I'd be studying at Cambridge or whatever, trying to get an essay in on time. Every time my energy would dip, I would just reach for the next chocolate bar or the next bag of chips or just constantly trying to keep my brain fueled. My brain is so much happier running on quality fats or ketones or whatever. I just never gave it that chance. Um, Is is syrup in the same category as honey? Yeah, it's sugar. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's all sugar. I mean, the only thing that honey might be useful for is putting on a wound. There's some evidence that it can be, it can have antibacterial properties, but putting it in your mouth, no, it's just sticky sugar. There, there's a, uh, I hope I can find this. Hey, your cramps, by the way, your cramps. I was just thinking, you know, the guy that, um, Kimmy, whatever, um, he, he set up Verta. He was one of the founders of Verta and he did that rowing event where he rowed on, on virtually zero carb. Him and his oh, is wife. that the guy? And they, and they rode across the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was that guy's name? He, he had. I'm sure it was. Um, Matt will have it in a second. The guy who set up Verta, who did the rowing, he had. I wonder if your circulation thing is actually cramps in some way, because he found that when he just got his electrolytes right, which just meant adding enough salt to the meat and fat protein that he was eating, everything sorted itself out. So right amount of salt, as I said. Yeah, well, may, may, maybe. Because salt yeah. is not dangerous, you know that. So if you eat too much salt, your body will just make you thirsty because there's potassium in water, and then your body will just get you thirsty to drink. I and mean, there's potassium and sodium in water, but there's more potassium. So you'll drink and you'll you'll get less thirsty because you'll um, mitigate the sodium balance. You'll get it back to normal. So try some salt next time instead of sugar. Mm. That doesn't sound as so yeah. Hey, he's a he's a Finnish guy, uh, Souza. Um, I think he was also the owner, a founder of Link. No, not LinkedIn. Um, Trulia, maybe. He's he's very rich. I do. Yeah, know. very rich. Yeah, I think he I think he found Trulia and then sold it, and then now he started Verda. Um, let's see. I want to pick. I, I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, oh, I want to talk to you about uh, baby formula. No. Next, that'll be our next call. The obesity uh, epidemic, 1976-1980. That's a different call. Uh, hey, we're this... doing this again. Lucky us. Who, what? Yes, what? Huh? <laughs> we're going to do that again, yeah? Yes, yes, yes. I, I hope so. I hope you'll come on again. I hope you'll have so much fun, and I won't keep you too long. But there was this thing that basically you say somewhere that basically if you do caloric restriction to lose weight, that that is absolutely not sustainable. Yeah. It's just, it's just talk, talk, talk me through that. So, so, so talk, talk me through that. Like I'm just an idiot because so I kind of am. Yeah. If you want to Google one of my talks on this. So, oh um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Before you start anyone, please, I can't emphasize enough. The videos are, are so solid. She speaks at, at an incredibly fast pace. She has incredible sides slides. She keeps everything clean. No, not them. Not, oh no, it is him. Good job. Yes, Sami, Sami Inkinen. That's right. Sami Inkinen. Yes. I'm thinking of Kimi Raikkonen, but he's the Formula One driver, isn't he? Or he was anyway. Yeah. He looks great yeah. with facial hair. He should grow that back. He looks too clean when he doesn't have facial hair. Anyway, you want to type in Zoe Harcomb and you want to put it into Google. And there are so many great videos. As a matter of fact, there's a couple from CrossFit. And all of this stuff will be explained to you concisely. And you can just get like I, I know for a lot of people like me, you just want to be told what to eat and why and 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 and, and be able to like 
comprehend it. And these videos are great. And there's a gang of them out there. So Google her name and you can get all this information. Sorry, go yeah. ahead, Zoe. The one you, you want for this one is if you put in um, PHC, those three letters, Public Health Collaboration, PHC, I think it was 2017. And if you put in calories and kettles or something and my name, that should come up in, instantly. Um, and that's one where I do a sort of 40-minute everything on everything to do with calories why do we even think that calories are important? It goes back to thermodynamics. Um, is there a principle of thermodynamics that says energy in equals energy out? No, there isn't. Um, the whole calorie theory, this, this idea, you'll have seen this somewhere in magazines where they say, oh, to lose one pound of fat, you just need to create a deficit of three and a half thousand calories, and then you will magically lose one pound of fat. So I just kind of dissected that. It's like, okay, so one pound doesn't even equal three and a half, that's the one. One pound doesn't even equal three and a half thousand calories. So just tore the whole lot apart brick by brick. Um, and because one pound doesn't equal three and a half thousand calories, you won't lose a pound if you create a deficit of three and a half thousand calories. This this whole idea. So people just say, if you just put less in and you just do more, forget that they say it's to the tune of three and a half thousand calories, which just does not add up. You can't even source it. It's just a myth that has come about. It's insane. Um, if you just eat less and or do more, your body will just give up body fat. It's like, where do you start? There are so many things that are wrong with that. So Bear with me here, but it sounds so logical, right? No, it doesn't. No? Uh, okay, okay. Help me out here. Because, uh, okay, so one one thing that is immediate, that, that is assuming that your body is not going to compensate in any way. And your body well, if you have a car and you have gas in it. It'll conk out. And I, and I drive. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, so okay. You have a car and you've got enough petrol to get from California to, I don't know, Illinois or whatever, and then you halve it, which is what they say, cut your you know, calories by a 1,000 a day or whatever, you'll get half as far. The car okay. will out. So that is a perfect analogy because what they're saying is um, put less in the car and flog the car even harder yep. and everything will be okay. No, it won't. You will get half as far and even less because you flogged it even harder. Okay. Um, it just doesn't work. The body adjusts. So you try to eat less, the body will just immediately do less. You're just completely assuming that this magnificent thing that is the human body, utterly magnificent, that it cannot and will not make any adjustment whatsoever. It can and it does. Um, it just does. So it can switch things off. So in women, you'll have seen this with women who diet too hard, their periods stop immediately. So that's one of the nine systems of the body just turned off straight away. We're just not going to do that. Forget reproduction. So instead of burning fat, you lose your menses. Exactly. And instead of burning fat, you get cold. And instead of burning fat, it turns down the circulatory system. Oh, that happened to me. That's happened to me. Exactly. Exactly. So it just adjusts. Um, the other thing it will do is it will do everything it can to try to get you to eat more because you're in a starvation situation. You're hardwired to eat what you need. So the minute you try to eat less, all you can think about is eating more. The minute you go on a calorie controlled diet, all you can think about is food. And that's deliberate because the body is trying to get you to put that food in. So first of all, you're fighting your body, turning off systems and, and downplaying all the things that it could be doing. So there's studies on my website on this. So they have actually now academically studied and shown if you put less in, the body does less. Yeah, that's do more. Yeah, the body, the body compensates at other times. So you, you do. I mean, CrossFit guys are, are different because we we're kind of hardwired in a different way. But your average person who goes to the gym then goes home and collapses on the sofa and watches Netflix and rewards themselves with crap food because they've done something really heroic and they went to the gym for half an hour. 
And the gym machine told them that they burned uh, 200 calories. So they have a Weight Watchers encourages this. They have a 200 calorie confectionery bar because you earned it kind of thing. I mean, it's just insane. There are so many reasons why it just isn't going to work. Your body's going to work against you. Your body's going to adapt. Your body's going to get you to do less. Your body's going to get you to try to eat more. And then the other thing that completely fails it, that's one whole angle that I go through. So it's not so calories in, calories out is, is. Just ignore calories. Think of calories as fuel for your car. Okay. And so what you should be thinking of is if I need a certain amount of food per day, then I need to make sure that that fuel that I'm eating is giving me the other things that I need. Because that's the other thing that happens when you go on a calorie control diet. And trust me, I did it as a teenager. So I got the t-shirt. I was gold medalist, calorie counter. I was a mathematician. I can hold numbers in my head. I can play with them easily. I was fucking brilliant at calorie counting. I tell you, you know, no one better. You get the biggest bang for the buck because you're hungry the whole time. So if I was trying to limit myself to a thousand calories a day, when I was a teenager, I was playing hockey for the school. I was doing athletics for the school. I was swimming for the tool. I was life-saving. I was a really good athlete when I was younger. And I was trying to do it all on a thousand calories a day. So you don't eat fat. A thousand, wow. No, you don't eat fat for a thousand calories a day because calories in fat approximate to nine per gram. In carbohydrate and protein, they approximate to four per gram. Again, that's not accurate, but it's an approximation. So you always go for low fat foods, you go for carbohydrate foods. So your breakfast will be apples and rice cakes and black coffee and bread with no butter on it. And then your lunch, you might have the same. You might have, you know, apples, what a great food, a small apple, 50 calories, yay. I can have four apples for 200 calories for lunch, you know, get me. I can have a 50 calorie pot of low fat, high sugar yogurt um in my dinner and that's going to make me feel like I've really had something after my 50 calorie coleslaw pot you know this is all processed food because they count the calories for you right Um, you make really bad choices when you count calories you move away from the most nutritious foods and you move towards the calorie counted processed least nutritious foods but the real killer is that people think all it needs for the body to lose weight is to have a calorie deficit Mm -hmm. you will know that that is not how the body loses weight to to be able to lose weight if you think about what weight loss actually is weight loss is the body the body breaking down body fat so under what circumstances can the body break down body fat it can only do that with glucagon so glucagon is the the hormone you you know insulin and glucagon so we'll explain it for everyone so you've got the the two basically regulate our blood glucose levels they do other things but essentially their main role is to to regulate blood glucose levels. So in our entire bloodstream, yours and mine, at any one time, we should have no more than one teaspoon of glucose. That's four grams of glucose. That is tiny in our entire bloodstream. So the minute we have an apple, which is about, I don't know, 20 grams of carbohydrate, 10 of those approximately will be glucose, 10 of those approximately will be fructose. Fructose goes to the liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, thank you very much, and the glucose goes into the bloodstream. And that's twice as much as you need, and you've already probably got exactly four grams in as your body has regulated it. So the body says, I've got to get that glucose that's just gone in from the apple out of the bloodstream. So it calls on insulin, says, insulin, your job is to get glucose out of the bloodstream. Now, at four o'clock in the morning, when you haven't eaten for a few hours, if your blood glucose levels are dipping a little bit low, the body then says, hey, glucagon, you're the opposite. You go and do your job now. This guy's getting a bit low glucose. Go and put some glucose back into the bloodstream. So how does the body do that? The body breaks down body fat because body Mm -hmm. fat 
is also called triglyceride, not to be confused with blood fats. That's just really annoying that they've got the same name. So your body breaks down triglyceride, tri, the word meaning three. It's basically three fats on a black backbone of glycerol. And it's the glycerol bit that the body's interested in because that's the bit that can top up the blood glucose level. But you just lost weight at four o'clock in the morning. You just broke down body fat. So you look at that and you say, right, under what circumstances can I break down body fat? Now, think of insulin and glucagon as like alley cats. They are never, you know, there's two tomcats and they don't want to be in the alley at the same time because they're going to have a fight and it's going to be bad news. So if insulin is out, glucagon's at home. And if glucagon's out, then insulin's at home. They don't, they can't be in play at the same time. They're antagonists. That's the technical term. So you can only have glucagon do its thing when insulin is not around. You only need glucagon to do its thing when blood glucose has got low enough that it needs to do its thing. So immediately you can start painting the picture of the scenario in which you can actually lose weight. First of all, you cannot have insulin present, which means you cannot be snacking on carbohydrates the whole damn time. Because every time you put carbohydrate into your body, you wake up insulin. Interestingly, and there was another post on my So, site. So you're, even if you're on a restricted diet, but you're eating every two hours little carbohydrates, you're just sabotaging the whole system. You've got it. And that's what I did as a calorie counter. So I would get to the point, I would eat a packet of um, fruit gums, we call them over in the UK, um, is, is basically fruit sweets. They have nothing in them other than fruit flavoring, sugar, and a bit of gelatin to, to bind them together. Um, so I wasn't eating those when I was vegetarian. This was as, as a teenager. And I would graze on those because it would make me think I'm continuing or you chew gum. Um, you know, you just continually feel this need to to be consuming something. So you are constantly you are setting yourself up for insulin resistance big time. But you are constantly having insulin present in the body. Now, what people also don't realize, and I did a, a recent interesting post on this looking at the Holt paper from 1997, an insulin index of food. It's a very recent one. It will be on the, the homepage on the right hand side. What people don't realize is protein also has an impact on insulin, quite a striking impact on insulin. So all the people thinking, oh, I'm really low carb, but I'm having these protein shakes and I'm having these skinless chicken breasts and white fish and being all bodybuilder type. Um, you are also calling upon insulin a lot of the time, a lot more than you need to be. And every time you've got insulin present, you cannot have glucagon present. So we have got to stop grazing. You know, I said this at the, the conference. Oh, and it says that in several places on your site. I saw also. Graze. I say, unless right. you are a cow or want to be the size of one, stop grazing, because that is the single worst thing that you can do. Just continually chucking stuff in your mouth. You know, my three rules are eat real food. Choose that real food for the nutrients it provides. And number three, eat a maximum of three times a day. What was the second one? Eat, choose that real food for the nutrients oh. it provides. So that's the one that makes you go for red meat, oily fish, full fat dairy, eggs. And if you want some green things, sunflower seeds are quite useful for vitamin E, you know, rare kind of things, but it, it doesn't get you eating beige stuff. So to lose weight, you cannot be consuming carbohydrate the whole time. So I actually, in, the, in that calorie presentation, the kettles, the one at the PhD, towards the end, I actually go through this little chart where I say, I don't know the numbers on this. If I did, I've, I would have written an academic paper on this. What I don't know is, okay, to make, make the math simple, 2,000 calories a day. Let's say I, as a, a female, need 2,000 calories a day. Calories are just petrol. Don't think of them as something to be cut. Let's say I need 2,000 calories a day. Approximately 1,500 of that are for what we call basic metabolic needs. 
So even if I'm ill in bed all day and I I just don't get out of bed, I still need about 1500 calories because my body still needs to fight infection, build bone density, keep the body pumping around, keep my menses going, circulation, all the nine systems of the body still needs all of that. Now, what I don't know is how much of that basal metabolic rate can be provided by carbohydrate. Um, the body basically wants those functions done. They are they are fueled by fat and protein by and large. So if I'm if I mean keep the maths easy again, and I say right, the whole of those fifteen hundred calories need to come in the form of fat and protein. So take that two thousand calorie a day person, cut them back to a thousand calories a day. But what they do is they choose carbohydrate. So you mm. eat so much fruit and fruit gums and crackers and rice cakes. So you only needed 500 calories of carbohydrate for your extra activity on top of the basal metabolic needs. And actually, you didn't need that in the form of carbohydrate. That could happily be fueled by fat. Right. So you had zero need for carbohydrate, but you had a thousand calories of carbohydrate, which was actually twice as much as you needed for your energy, your moderate activity. Right daily basis but you had more than you needed that couldn't contribute to the basal metabolic needs so you can see how a calorie counter can get both fat and sick because then what, what a great explanation you just gave wow you're not eating what you need but you are eating more of the stuff that you don't need so you, you just i said just forget counting calories i don't get hungry um I, I do feel fine i don't don't know if i eat to satiety you know i do remember on christmas day i went out for dinner and I definitely got to the point where I thought, that's great. I've had enough. I feel really good. Um, I never eat until I'm sick, but I'll eat I'll eat what's what's there kind of thing. But the only way you can lose weight is not to have insulin in play, to enable glucagon to do its thing. And those are the circumstances in which you can lose weight. You still won't necessarily lose weight. You still then have to give the body a reason to burn fat. Um, how many hours of not putting something in your mouth before this happens before the insulin's gone and the glucagon's there um that will probably depend a lot on what you had at the last meal okay so if you have um i don't know uh, you go out for dinner you have a massive pasta dish thousand calories of pasta eight o'clock in the evening um you're probably still going to have that that the body will take it out, take the glucose out of the bloodstream instantly and pack it away as glycogen. And then throughout the night, the body might be saying, okay, we need a bit of, of glucose going back in. But of course, the first port of call for, for um, glucagon is just to go to the, the larder, to go to the storage room of glucose, which is your glycogen storage, and then just put that back into the bloodstream. So you're not losing weight. You're just putting the pasta that you ate at eight o'clock, you're just putting that oh. back in the bloodstream. So it's only when you don't have that available to go back into the bloodstream. Mm. So lose weight. You've got to be low in carbohydrate. Because yeah. you have that 1,400 calories of storage there. And if by the end of the day you haven't used those 1,400 calories of storage, let's say somebody and, – and, and marathon runners do this. So they will feel – you know they'll have the – okay, let's forget a marathon runner. Let's just say that there's a person who's trying to get the biggest bang for the buck. So they follow the dietary advice. They're eating cereal, beige stuff, fruit, vegetables, legumes, all that stuff all day long. So they've got their 1400 calories of glucose. If they don't use that up because they're not very active at the end of every 24 hour period, the body basically says, right, we need to turn that to fat because your body, this is, this is another brilliant thing. Your body doesn't store fuel 
um, the reason it stores, can you, I don't know how to put this across. So you, you approximate um, carbohydrates to four calories a gram and you approximate fat to nine calories per gram. So when I said that we've got something like 40, I've got 40,000 calories of fat stored on me. Can you imagine if that fat was stored as carbohydrate? It would be 2.9 over four times bigger than the fat that I'm storing. Ah, ah, ah. How much wow. bigger would we be if we were storing wow. carbohydrate all around everywhere? So the body's really efficient. The body says we don't need much carbohydrate because actually we need zero carbohydrate. Zero is a non, carbohydrate is a non-essential nutrient. So we just have this limited capacity for storing it because the, the body has not evolved to have a lot of it. We didn't find it. It wasn't, fruit wasn't available most of the year. Um, we couldn't access carbohydrates, that tubers, root vegetables until we had fire. There are so many reasons why carbohydrate is just not all that to the body. And yet it's what we now eat all day long. So you've got to not have your 1400 calories of carbohydrate stored. Um, you've got to be at best moderate carbohydrate, which Prof Notes would define as below 130 grams of carbohydrate a day, no more than approximately 25, 26% of your daily intake in the form of carbohydrate. That's a basic. Um, and if you can go lower than that, even better. And then you've got to give your body the opportunity to be able to burn body fat. Once that glucose has run out, the body then can burn body fat. If you can then add in intensive activity, mixed activity like we do with CrossFit, you're giving your body the chance to burn body fat, um, avoid alcohol because that inhibits the operation of glucagon. So that stops. Oh, it does. It does. So the really quick one on alcohol, alcohol is not about calories. It's in that presentation as well. I mentioned alcohol in that presentation. You can't store alcohol calories. Uh, alcohol is, is an anathema to the body. It's basically a toxin. So when it comes into the body, the body just wants to get rid of it. So um, your liver starts going into overdrive and starts dealing with this toxin as it perceives it. The body will preferentially use the alcohol calories. So if you have 100 calories from alcohol along with the 100 calories of pasta, it's going to use the 100 calories of alcohol first because it wants it rid of from the body. Wow. Then it will come on. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's affecting your fuel consumption because it's going to delay even your carbohydrate being used up. But if you just took it aside, if you just had alcohol and you had it with a steak so you don't have the carbohydrate complication – it inhibits the operation of glucagon for a period of time. I don't wow. know how long. You ask the question, how long before the, the glucose runs out? It depends how much you've had. How long before the alcohol stops impairing your ability to burn fat? It depends how much alcohol you've had. So right. maybe it works on the basis of um, they say you lose about a unit of alcohol every hour or so. Um, as a rule of thumb, if you want to get back into driving your car safely. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's like that for how long it takes before you can go back to having your glucagon working effectively. But glucagon switching off your fat burning during the night, which is the time we're most likely to lose weight. And that's not great if you're trying to lose weight. Yeah, that uh, we're at an hour and 45, but I got to ask you this too. Are, oh <laughs> are, are you, are you a fat? So I don't, every Saturday night, I wouldn't have done this when I was younger, but I find it super duper effective at, at my age at 49. Every Saturday night, and it doesn't matter what time, I, that's the last meal I have until Monday morning. I just don't eat Sundays. And I've done that for over a year now. Do you have any, do you have any uh, issues with that? I don't, it's not for me. Um, I, I wouldn't enjoy that. I love my food. Yeah. Um, so Andy's cooking dinner right now. Um, this is about the time that we we would eat. I oh. don't 
and eat until breakfast tomorrow. Um, do, do you think it's bad that I do that? You think it's it's too much? You think I'm fucking with my my system? I mean, I what's crazy is when I wake up. Obviously, I mean, obviously, when I wake up on Monday morning. So, what basically what it does is it gives me a fast where I get to sleep twice. I get, to, you know what I mean. Sure. So I don't I don't eat all day Sunday, but then I get to sleep Saturday night not eating, and then I get to sleep Sunday night. And 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 when I wake up Monday mornings, I'm I'm absolutely not hungry at all, zero. I ne- I'm, I never have woken up hungry, and I've been doing this for sixty weeks. Why do you do it? Uh, to give two things because I was fascinated by the concept of autophagy. Okay. And um, to give my I like the. It, nothing scientific based. I like the idea of giving my body, my digestive track a day of rest a week. It seems, it's, it seems fair to me. And it's probably, especially at my, especially at my age. Yeah. It's probably what we would have done. We wouldn't have had food every day. Um, I mean, I think it's sort of how it works for you. I think in, cause I've worked a lot with women who've had bad eating habits in the past. And I think for a lot of those, is quite dangerous because I think it wakes up this whole, oh, I'm not going to eat today because I ate too much yesterday kind of thing. This whole sort of binge starve behavior. Yeah. It, 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 and to tell you the truth, the first like three to six months I did it, Saturday night before I went to bed, I would feel a little bit of a panic. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I would do that. I would stuff myself. You know what I mean? Like I would, instead of having a small bowl of berries with a little heavy cream, I'd have a massive yeah. bowl of berries with yeah. a lot of heavy cream. Yeah. And that's, that's not good. It sounds like you're not there now, which is no, no, no. Now I even forget. Now I forget. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would worry about people who've had eating problems in the past going that route. Cause I could see that happening. I wouldn't enjoy it. Cause I love my food. I wake up each morning. The first thing I want is breakfast. Um, and I love a massive cappuccino with full fat. I mean, you say full fat milk, it's still three and a half percent fat for goodness sake. Right. Um, you know, milk is, is not heavy fat, but I like, I like, I love dairy. Um, so I'll have heavy yogurt and some berries and, um, eggs maybe. And I love it. Um, I wouldn't want to go a single day without eating. If I ever went a day without eating, I would be really ill. It's, um, it's, you know, my mom's about, my mom's five feet tall, hundred pounds. And, and for her, the day taking a day off, isn't really an option either. She went to a, um, she went to like a fasting clinic, like where you stay the night there. And there were, she said there were people there who like hadn't eaten like in 70 days. But like after like three days, the doctor's like, yeah, you're done. My mom's <laughs> like, what do you mean? They're like, you're too small. You're, you're done. Go eat. Yeah, I, I wouldn't like it. No, I, 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 I don't even stick to my third rule. I, I, I do eat more than four times a day. When all this COVID nonsense started and they said, oh, it's three weeks to flatten the curve. And me and my hubby were like, yeah, right. This isn't going to be three weeks. Um, I make this amazing chocolate mousse. So I'll send you the recipe. And you did just, know you knew it was a scam from I mean, I knew no, the sickness no. was a scam from day one, but you knew that that this two weeks was going to go yeah, into yeah, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I remember Greg, actually, I hope I can share this. Greg um, hosted a, a podcast. I mean, he, he kind of got us all together on a Zoom call. Um, and I won't say who else was on it, but I'm like, oh, my goodness, these are all my heroes around the world because he had access to people like that. Yeah. And we just had a free for all kind of chat of, OK, what do we think is going on? We had academics, we had doctors um, and there were a couple who were a little bit cautious, as in not too sure about this. But everyone else just called it and said, this is insane. And the the main reason why I thought this was insane was because I'd looked at what a pandemic plan was. So yeah, pandemic, whatever. I hate that word because I mean, to me, they changed the definition of pandemic. So you know, they there's just so much they've done. Do you know who calls it a so-called pandemic? 
Go on. Um, uh, Eckhart Tolle. Oh, really? I love him. And, and that's why I bring that up to you because there are a lot of very wide. I have a friend who's a monastic uh, monk, he, you know, and uh, and he said that even the vast majority of the Buddhists don't get it, that they're completely. It's so scary. Well, a pandemic used. I mean, I'm not I'm not being disrespectful here. I'm just being academic. Yeah. Scientific. A pandemic had a definition and it was a, a certain death level yep. right across the world. Um, and we just didn't have that. So you look at the, and there's a great document from 2019. You look at the World Health Organization. If we ever do get a pandemic, what would we do? And it kind of went through. And there's this little summary table. It's just fantastic. And it's like, don't close borders. Makes no difference. Don't shut down public transport. Don't even think about closing schools. So the word lockdown was just not there. Yeah. It was inconceivable that you would lock human beings in their homes, isolate them from other people. And then all the other stuff we started doing, you can't have weddings, you can't have funerals. In the UK, we had this, um, oh, you can take your mask off if you're drinking, but only if you're having a substantial meal. So then we have, <laughs> seriously, we had this debate, what counts as a substantial meal? And I don't know if you know, there's this British dish called a Scotch egg. It's an egg, a boil, hard boiled egg surrounded by sausage meat. It's the most disgusting thing you've ever heard of. And they decided that was your benchmark. If you were having that, you could take your mask off. And if you weren't, you weren't allowed to drink. I mean, we've had insanity. How would you do it? You would just like like put your straw oh, inside no. your mask? You're supposed to, you know how it works. You walk into the restaurant with your mask on. And you, then you sit down and you take your mask off because the virus knows that it won't get you now because you only yeah. have risk when you – I mean, you, please, somebody tell me. We will look back on these two years and say, what did we do? We lost our minds. Some of us realized straight away we are losing our minds here. But so many people didn't. And the fear, a friend of mine. She's fear, become, yeah, they're scared. They're scared. They're all scared. A state of fear by someone who's become a friend since. She's called Laura Dodsworth. State a state of fear. of fear? State of fear. Great title. Because she talks about what happened to us in the UK, what the behavioral scientists did to scare the life out of us. Because they knew unless we were scared, we wouldn't comply. So they had to get us so scared that we would comply with all these things, even though they were completely and utterly non-scientific and absurd. So that that's what's been done to us. But yeah, I, I it was it was BS to me from day one. So we have this chocolate mousse, and we still have that every morning. It's like our treat. So I'm currently eating four times a day. God, we covered a lot of ground then. <laughs> Just for me to tell you, I'm not eating. State of fear. It's brilliant. I mean, look how many reviews. Eight hundred thirteen. I think it's just pretty much. Five star. I think the Dutch Parliament, somebody bought it for every member of Parliament. I think somebody in the UK bought it for every member of Parliament in the UK. It just documents what these evil bastards on these government committees were doing to make sure that we stayed scared, scaring the life out of people for two years takes some doing. And every time we might have got a little bit less scared because it was sunny and we started going out and enjoying the sunshine and going on the beach, they'd bring something else out to scare the life out of us again so that they could keep us compliant. It's been truly evil what has been done to us. I, I wish I could remember the guy's name. It was it was like 200 podcasts ago. I should have him back on. But basically, he is the head of the largest psychiatric institution in um, Stockholm. And I had him as a guest on the podcast and he was saying that 30 years ago, 
the people that they would see the the issues that they would come into this to the institution with were unfathomable stuff he can't even talk about like the worst shit that you could do to human being happened to this person and now they're in a psychiatric facility he said now they have a psychiatric facility with people just full full of people who like their dog got hit by a car or their boyfriend broke up with them he said the society he said it's so fucked up it's the the softness of people, the, the the ability of people to cope with shit on their own is just out the door. And I I picture this um, I picture this uh, society, especially the obese uh, and, and the, those addicted to food. They've walked out onto a tight wire in between, um, you know, at the Grand Canyon. Let's say they're over a huge crevasse, civilization, and the wind is picked up. And they're now just blowing off. And the rest of us are just sitting there, you know, like eating our piece of chicken on the side, being like, hey, you guys should walk back off that wire. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's it's crazy. Yeah, it, it is. It, I mean, we'll, I, have the woke. we'll have to do the woke on another one as well, because the woke you guys have that word in, in the UK. Yeah. Woke? Yeah. yeah, the woke. Yeah. The woke is insane. You know, we're, we're at war at the moment and people are worrying about their pronouns. Yes, 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 yes. Oh my God! Guys, um, uh, you know. did you see what? Did you see what, um, one of our politicians? I think he ran for president, John Kerry. He's concerned about the effect the war is going to have on climate change. <laughs> I'm concerned that the effect of war is going to have on war and and world stability and civilization and food and energy and being able to turn the lights on and put food in my mouth and nuclear and that kind of, you know, those fairly big issues concern me. Um, is your, does it feel like your civilization in the UK is falling apart? That's what it feels like in the United States here. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're yes. in a bad place at the moment. I mean, I try to yeah. stay sunny and positive and Eckhart Tolle power of now do what I can stay where I am, connect with good people, like-minded people, stay away from battery drainers, that kind of thing. Um, that's all we can do at the moment. Look after ourselves. The world is going mad around us. Just find the people who have not lost their minds and spend as much time with them as possible. I've met some fantastic people over the last two years. I, my, my address book is better than it's ever been. Just <clears throat> amazing, connected, grounded, smart people. Yeah, that's great. It's nice to be. Yeah, that's great. That makes me happy to hear that. It's like that here also. Unfortunately, it, it, it's fascinating I, because I live on the Pacific Ocean. If you stay close to the ocean and when I mean close a quarter mile, let's say like like three or four hundred meters, there's quite a sane group of people. The second like and, and I'm, I'm further in, I'm like three miles in from the Pacific Ocean and, and, and it's just full of zombies and wackadoodles. But I can just drive to the coast and that in general, that group of people, they just know. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're just enjoying their lives. They have their shirts off. Yeah. They're drinking water. They're running. They're playing Frisbee. They don't care. They don't give a shit. Yeah. And meanwhile, our homeless encampments, our drug addict encampments are flourishing with uh, no COVID deaths. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder why. Uh, Zoe, I, I, I knew I came over prepared. I have so many questions to ask you. Maybe next time I, um, I, I didn't give you any ideas of what we were going to talk about. 
Um, maybe next time there, there's some topics that I think would be really fun to talk about. Um, uh, natural birth, breastfeeding, baby formula, some topics I've heard you touch on your, in your conversations that I think would be really helpful. It'd be fun to talk about the 1976 to 1980. I know you uh, have a lot of strong opinions and great observations on uh, the low fat diet coming into uh, the United States. Um, and I do also appreciate you giving the United States credit for kind of being the home birthplace of the obesity <laughs> epidemic and, and, not, and not the UK. Ah, it's perfect. It is. It's the truth. Yeah. It you is the truth. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, tell Andy I said hi. Will and, do. And, it's, uh, it's so lovely seeing your handsome face again. Yeah, thank you. It's awesome seeing you too. I was telling Haley all last night, I said, whenever I would see run into you and Andy, um, in the States, there was always a spark and like a sense of giddiness, like kids getting on the playground. Together. I know, we, we, were a long time. Yeah. we misbehaved. Yeah. <sighs> Don't 